When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Christina Cotarucci from Slate. The What Next team is taking a break this week, so they asked me to pick some of my favorite episodes to replay for you. For today, I present to you Mary Harris's conversation with Jamel Bowie on Joe Biden's political record. The episode first aired in mid-March, and I love the way Jamel reframes Biden's politics. They kind of got buried by his association with Barack Obama, but they're worth reconsidering now that Biden's running for president again. On to the show. Okay, so this weekend, this poll came out and it showed Joe Biden in Iowa with 27 percent of the vote, which is the lead. Bernie's like right behind him at 25 percent. I have a tendency to basically roll my eyes at these kinds of polls. Former Slatester, current New York Times opinion columnist, Jamel Bowie, he rolls his eyes at a lot of political coverage. It's why I like having him on the show. At this stage in any presidential race, we're just kind of gauging name recognition. Everyone knows who Joe Biden is, and he's the leader. Bernie Sanders is next up in terms of who everyone knows, then Elizabeth Warren, then Kamala Harris. It's not conclusive of anything. Lots can change in between you know, now and the end of the year, or now when voting begins. I guess I do feel, though, that there's like this, I don't know if I'd call it hunger or appetite, but there's this growing surge kind of feeling about Biden. There's this feeling of he's kind of unavoidable. I think that's true just because he's sort of he was the former vice president of the previous president who is who remains a very popular Democrat. So it's it's only natural that there's conversation about Biden. And honestly, if you were 10 years younger, it would be there'd be like no question at all. Joe Biden is 76 years old. But that's just one reason Jamel is uneasy about his candidacy. The interesting thing about Biden, he kind of came to national prominence for the second time as Obama's vice president. And that's kind of the lens, I think, through which many voters, especially younger voters, are viewing him. But he had this long career, this 30-year career in the Senate, which for most of it, he was a pretty conservative Democrat and conservative on issues that are very salient right now. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. 
Joe Biden's been working in Washington for decades, so his record's long. Some say it's problematic. So today on the show, Jamel's going to make his case that Uncle Joe might defeat Trump, but he won't defeat Trumpism. And that matters. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Joe Biden, he was elected at age 29. Am I right about that? Right. He's elected at age 29. And I think by the time he's sworn in, he's 30. That's reaching the constitutional threshold. So young. No, I'm I'm 31 right now. And I actually cannot imagine being a United States senator. It sounds insane. When he got to Washington, what were the issues that were important to him? You know, Biden entered Washington sort of during the Nixon era, during a period where Democrats appeared to be on the decline. And he was aligned from the very beginning with liberal Democrats who necess- who wanted to kind of move the party away from its ties to sort of what some Americans perceived as kind of moving too quickly on big social questions around integration, around um, the war. So Biden follows suit. Um, he in the seventies is in the, in the mid seventies is an opponent of busing to desegregate schools, and into the nineteen eighties becomes a arch drug warrior, someone very much on board with the war on drugs. He becomes a, a, a noted tough on crime Democrat. We must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, but they are in jail. Away from my mother, your husband, our families. He's a moderate to conservative Democrat um, who may not buck the party on its biggest priorities. He's not going to vote for something that would privatize Social Security. He'll support civil rights laws, um, but on things that may alienate the kind of middle Americans he is pitching himself to, he's going to stick with, he's going to, as best as he can, represent them, which in the 80s and 90s often meant sort of embracing things that we see now as being quite harmful. The funny thing about Joe Biden is, is that I think he's become so associated with Barack Obama that people kind of have this amnesia about who he was before he was vice president. The, the best way I can describe it is it laundered his career that like we all these ugly parts, all these all these spots that would be contentious are kind of lost in the wash because um, of his association with the Obama presidency. I was going to say wave a magic wand, but I kind of like your phrasing better. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Biden's take on school desegregation. You know, just last week, the Washington Post published some comments he made about busing between black and white schools back in the 70s. And he really digs in on segregation in a way that's it's interesting to read now because no one would ever speak like this. 
I thought it was actually startling. He he was a national leader in the opposition to busing. Busing being the policy of moving kids from one school in town to a different to outside their neighborhood school for the sake of desegregation. It's worth saying here that busing was a successful policy. If the goal was to integrate schools and improve outcomes for students, busing worked. But it was terrifically unpopular, especially and particularly with white parents, white homeowners, et cetera, et cetera. And so Biden, who rep- whose constituency really leaned on that group of, of white voters, um, emerged as an opponent. He spoke against busing. He called it sort of unfair. His, his language went from sort of busing as a quota system, which makes it racist, to I don't feel any responsibility for what happened in the past. I shouldn't have to pay for it. That was um, the part that really stood out to me, where I was like, right. wow, <laughs> wow. Right, no, really sort of uh, vehement stuff. There's a passage I'm trying to think of, and I just um, pulled it up. One of the things he says is he calls the real problem with busing, which is that you take people who aren't racist, who are good citizens, who believe in equal education opportunity, and you stunt their children's growth by busing them to an inferior school, and you fill them with hatred. So basically saying that busing creates, turns not racist people into racist. I mean, really kind of startling stuff. Well, and just this assumption that if you mixed children, it would have a certain outcome and that obviously the schools where you'd be busing the white children would be inferior, like so many assumptions that are toxic. Right. And this is why, you know, after this came out, I saw some chatter that was essentially, well, this was, you know, this is 1975. This was over 40 years ago. You know, why is it relevant now? And I would make the case for it being relevant for two reasons. The first is that Biden has a long career. He's a man in his late 70s. And I think that something he said when he was in his 30s, uh, when he was in his mid-30s, should count, should it be should be something we talk about and not just kind of disregard as the past. The second thing is that in that Washington Post piece, Biden's spokesperson today says that Biden stands by his opposition to busing. So it's not as if we can say that he's 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 gone back on this opposition. Maybe he wouldn't put it in the same terms. Maybe he would say, well, I still uh, I still support school integration, just not through this way. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't litigate this. And my question uh, for him or my observation would be that in the 1970s, this was the option for integration. Given housing segregation, this was how we're going to do it. And so to oppose busing in the 1970s, when this country was making its first real stab at trying to integrate its schools, was effectively to oppose integration. You can't say, I, I just want to do it another way, when there weren't necessarily other ways available. Well, Biden, he's come out with what his agenda would be. You've written about this, that he's not endorsing Medicare for all, but he is endorsing very liberal ideas about a $15 per hour minimum wage and um, taxing the rich. Does that make a difference in this regard? I don't know if it does, simply because it didn't make a difference for Hillary Clinton, right? That Hillary Clinton also endorsed a pretty liberal agenda, not as as, uh, far to the left as Bernie Sanders's, but still pretty liberal in its own right. And um, it didn't make it didn't make a difference. The question was still about her past, and I, I imagine this something similar would happen with Biden. 
that his liberal agenda is probably sort of the minimum cost of entry to even be considered by many voters. And a lot of the conversation will center on his on his pre-Obama past, which I think is as it should be. If Joe Biden is the nominee, if he's president, he will not be Barack Obama's vice president. He'll be a figure in his own right. And so his career ought to be discussed and talked about and litigated. It stands out to me that, you know, right now we're in this process of honing ideas. You know, your colleague over at The Times, David Leonhardt, wrote a piece saying Biden should run so that his ideas get out there and get a hearing and so that he doesn't leave himself out and he doesn't leave us behind. It sounds like in your world, you don't want him to run at all. I don't, I neither, I, I neither, I'll put it this way. Who am I to say that someone cannot run? I think that he's not the best candidate. I think his pitch and a, and a potential appeal comes with real downsides, given the fact that um, uh, Donald Trump is in the White House and Donald Trump's whole kind of thing is riding the crest of, of uh, white racial backlash Although I think Biden does have interesting ideas about mobility, I'm not sure that he'll necessarily stand out. You've also talked about something else with Joe Biden, which is we talk about him as a moderate, but not necessarily because of what his policy ideas are. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I wonder if you can lay that case out. Sure. Um, You know, yeah, Biden is talked about as a moderate Democrat. That's kind of usually the next statement when people say his name, Vice President Joe Biden, a moderate Democrat. But if his policy or his policy platform is very liberal, um, my case that what makes him moderate isn't so much that his positions are like splitting the difference between kind of the left wing and the right wing of the Democratic Party, but that he has an orientation towards established stakeholders that is very accommodationist, um, a belief that um, through dialogue and discussion and compromise, government can get things that are like mutually beneficial to everyone. And I think that's a moderate stance. I think that the, that the left-wing stance or the more liberal stance may be encapsulated by someone like Elizabeth Warren is that, no, in fact, that, the, that there are people who have deep stakes in the status quo, who resist any change to it, and the only way to get things done that are necessary to get done are to kind of take an adversarial pose towards those people. That That is what I sense is actually being the bigger divide in the democratic field, how adversarial you believe you need to be to accomplish anything. Where you fall on that question, I think, ends up shaping much of what you think needs to be done in terms of political reform, whether that's voting rights, whether that's abolishing the filibuster, you know, what have you. It stands out to me that Biden has spent years and years and years in Washington sort of making deals and shaking hands and getting things done. And now we're just in a very different time. You know, like if the lesson of 2016 and in, in some case, even Barack Obama's election to me is like, we don't like Washington and we want change. But Biden is Washington. That's right. And there are real advantages to Biden having that experience and just in terms of, again, dealmaking and inside the process. But there's real disadvantages as well. And that is maybe too much confidence in his ability to overcome what are deep-seated ideological differences. And, you, and, and honestly, you see this among multiple Democrats. John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, who recently announced his campaign, insists that he could, if he just could sit down with Mitch McConnell in a room, they could hash out something, which is just, I, in my view, ludicrous. The past, the past decade have shown that that's just not the case. 
And so it's it among the many things that will be litigated in this Democratic primary is simply that, like, to what degree is confrontation a necessary part of being a president in a political environment that isn't entirely favorable to you? Well, here's here's what I started thinking about this weekend, which is in some ways I feel like a compromiser in chief might make sense as a president but might not get elected. Like maybe we need the fighting to happen in Congress, but that, you know, actually we do kind of need a compromiser in chief in the White House, but that just won't get there at this point in time. Like we may not be going back to a time where that could really happen. I don't know. I mean, if if the idea is that you're going to be compromising with the other side, then I just don't think that's very realistic. I, I think the last, I think the Obama presidency showed that at least for the near future, the Republican Party is just uninterested in doing the kind, in compromising on its core priorities, in that the compromises you make to try to get Republican support end up weakening the legislation. It is noteworthy, right, that the strongest and most durable part of the Affordable Care Act is the Medicaid expansion, which is a straight up, just like liberal, uh, unadulterated priority. Like we're just going to expand what Medicaid covers, who Medicaid covers unambiguously. And the parts that are most politically vulnerable, and if there's further reform to the Affordable Care Act, will almost certainly be changed in major ways, are the insurance exchanges, the regulated markets that was supposed to attract Republican support. I think that's a really powerful lesson for Democrats, that if they want to get something done, they're going to be negotiating amongst themselves, compromising amongst themselves, and that there's no value in trying to reach out to the other side. And so in that in that environment, is a compromiser-in-chief really valuable? Um, it, it, or is what's needed someone who recognizes these political dynamics and acts accordingly? I feel like the promise of a Biden candidacy relies on this idea of going back to a time when Washington worked. Here's a guy who worked the Washington system for years and years. And if you put him in charge, he'll make it work again, maybe. But did that time actually exist? I mean, there was a time when Washington worked better. um, But who it worked for is kind of the big question, right? Like, in the 80s and 90s, it worked very well for concentrated wealth and corporate power. It worked well for people who occupied, quote, mainstream America, for the white middle class um, or, or affluent white Americans. If you were outside of that, uh, if you were labor, if you were African Americans, if you were Latino immigrants, Washington didn't work that well. And I don't know. It's that thing where people have nostalgia for an era where Washington worked, but the substance of that work wasn't necessarily beneficial for everyone. So I'm not sure that we should necessarily be pining for the past rather than saying, what are the things we can do in the present, Um, the institutions we can change, the reforms we can make, the orientations we can take that would make Washington work now and make it work in a way that is actually inclusive. Jamel, thanks for talking this out with me. Hey, thank you for having me. We miss Jamel Bowie here at Slate, but these days you can check out his writing at the opinion section of the New York Times. All right, that's the show. 
What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. You can do us a huge favor by heading over to Apple Podcasts and rating us or leaving a review. It's great not just for our egos, but it helps other people find the show, and that means a lot to us. So thanks. You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Sometimes I tweet out little extras from the show. It's worth it. I promise. Talk to you tomorrow. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.